Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the 10 words with Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts. And here they are going to discuss the first word, thou shalt have no other gods before me. But before that, they're going to discuss what is the first word? Which verses does it encompass? They'll also talk about how this is actually a declaration of war against other gods. And they'll wrap up towards the end talking about what this means for us bringing idols before God's face today. We really hope that you enjoy this conversation and we thank you for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discussing the first word. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Brian Motes and also with Alistair Roberts, who is here in Birmingham for a while to uh, plan, to record, to write. We're going to lock him in a room until he finishes some writing projects that we've imposed upon him and to participate in our fellows program, which is coming up at the end of July. We're very much looking forward to that new form of the fellows program. We have an a good crew coming in and uh, very excited by the group that's coming and uh, by this first year of the program. So great to have Alistair involved in that project. Great to have Alistair also in here in the great state of Alabama. We were talking just before we hit record about the uh, doings in the state of Alabama of late, uh, which include a very strong pro-life bill that was passed uh, by this uh, 2019 legislature uh, and also the uh, very courageous move by the uh, uh, University of Alabama Law School recently, which uh, gave back $20 million that uh, was donated and also removed the name of the donor from its, uh, from, its, uh, uh, from its sign. It's no longer, the School of Law is no longer named for this donor. And uh, part of the reason was because he had been calling for a boycott against Alabama because of the pro-life legislation and was speaking uh, against the law school and against the university for being part of a state that would put such restrictions on abortion. So um, we're all proud of Alabama, and it's great to have Alistair here uh, at this time. When uh, We're not always proud of Alabama, but right now we are, and it's good to have Alistair here with us. Uh, we're in the middle of a, of a series of episodes on the Ten Words, uh, the Ten Commandments, which, as I've explained several times, we're calling the Ten Words. That's the phrase that's used in Scripture, and it, it's more accurately descriptive of what's actually in the text that we call the Ten Commandments. The Ten Words include uh, commandments, for sure, but they also include declarations, they include warnings, they include promises. There's much more given in the Ten Words than just the commandments. And so we've been trying to discipline ourselves to use that phrase, which is the phrase that's actually used in Exodus and Deuteronomy when it refers to this passage. Uh, we want to look at the first word, and the first question that comes up is, what is the first word? Uh, it's common in Reformed circles and in some other, uh, in some other uh, theological traditions to take Exodus 22, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, as a preface to the ten words. And then the first word is simply verse 3, you shall have no other gods before my face. I believe that I argued in maybe the first episode of this series that uh, Exodus 22 actually should be taken as the uh, beginning of and the rationale for the first for the first commandment, the first word, 
And so the first word actually includes Exodus 22 and 3. Uh, part of the reason for that is just the structure of the first five commandments, which are grouped together literarily in various ways. Each of the commandments includes a reference to the name of Yahweh. Each of the commandments has some kind of rationale attached to it. And if we uh, don't put verse 2 with the first word, then the first word is left without any reference explicitly to the name of Yahweh and without any rationale. And that would be a, a, a deviation from the pattern of the first five. The other thing we can see is a kind of a chiastic structure in the first two commandments. Uh, verse 2 in Exodus 20, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Then you have an, ex have an explicit prohibition. Thou shalt have no other gods before my face. That's the first word. And then the second word begins with a prohibition. Thou shalt make for yourself any image or any likeness of anything in heaven. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them or serve them. So uh, that's, the, uh, that's the B prime section that matches this, the first commandment in verse 3. And then you have an explanation of why Israel should not make and bow down to images. And that explanation includes uh, reference to I am Yahweh your God, I Yahweh your God, which is the same phrase that's used at the beginning of verse 2. So you have A, I am Yahweh your God, B, thou shalt have no other gods before me, B prime, thou shalt not make any graven images to bow down and serve them, uh, A prime is for I am Yahweh your God. So um, in that pattern, that uh, it groups together verses 2 and 3, the declaration, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt with the commandment, thou shalt have another gods before me. So I'm going to take, Alistair, you can dispute this, but I'm going to take verses 2 and 3 as the first word, and verse 2 not as the preface, but as an integral part of the first word. Taking that as an integral part of the first word, God identifies himself with a particular saving event and with a particular posture towards his people. As we go through the story of the Exodus, God is judging the gods of the Egyptians, in addition to Pharaoh and his people and the house of bondage in which the Israelites are um, servants. That understanding of God's identity um, that seems to be played out through the um, ten plagues, how can we see some of the ways that that provides a background for this distinction of God's identity from the other gods of the nations. Yeah, I think that's a couple of thoughts I have. Well, first, in I think this is particularly answering the question that you raise, which is in an ancient polytheistic context, everyone worshipped a god, probably many gods, to talk in terms of worshipping or believing in God. Uh, that, that's, that's a kind of nonsensical question. The question is, which god do you serve? Which god are you attached to? Or which gods do you seek out for what purposes? You might have a variety of gods who have specialties. To uh, identify, Yahweh identifies himself by name. Yahweh is a proper name rather than just a title. It doesn't mean God. It mean, it's, a, it's a proper name that has a particular meaning. And he identifies himself as Yahweh your God, uh, Israel's God. Uh, Yahweh your God who has done this particular thing for you. So he identifies himself by reference to this saving action. Uh, in part, what this is, this is an identifying phrase that distinguishes this God, the God of Israel, from all the other gods. Uh, this is a God who has triumphed over Egypt. This is the God who has rescued the slaves, and he has become the God of these slaves. That's getting at the particular question you asked. The other thing that occurs to me is that uh, I think it's true, although this, the first word is distinct, uh, 
there's a tradition of understanding the first word as uh, the the kind of heads heading to the entirety of the of the Decalogue. Uh, Thomas Aquinas and Luther both say this, and many others say this in in their different ways. Thomas Aquinas and Luther don't speak in the same theological idiom. Luther says something like this, and uh, I think it's in uh, the Freedom of the Christian Man. If you have faith, then you're honoring God as God. Uh, you're giving God the credit He deserves. That's fulfilling the first word. And if you can keep the first commandment, then all the others are easy. <laughs> <laughs> he's overestimating how easy they are, but um, he's seeing the, the first word as the key, and in some ways that infuses everything else. All the other commandments are particular applications of the demand to uh, worship the one God, the God of the Exodus. Uh, Thomas says this in a similar kind of way, uh, or sorry, in a different, if in a different idiom, in, in a Thomistic idiom, surprisingly enough, uh, when he talks about the end, uh, the, the aim and the end of all human action is the, is the worship of God. Uh, and so the first word uh, names the the end of all our moral activity, whether we're uh, refraining from stealing or positively uh, uh, giving uh, charitable gifts. Uh, that ultimately aims at the fulfillment of the first word, which is to serve and worship this one God above all. So uh, that I think that's those. Those are different ways of making the same point that the first word, as the as the heading to the ten words. Uh, infuses all the rest of it, and I think that's true also of the uh, the declaration about Yahweh that that begins the first word. That historical setting, that reference to the Exodus, infuses the whole Decalogue. The Decalogue, uh, you could summarize the Decalogue as: be the Exodus people, organize your life as individuals, organize your common life to conform to the fact that you've been brought out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Looking through the ten plagues, I find it's. Um, curious to see the development within those plagues and um, not just as expressions of divine power but expressions of divine sovereignty in particular realms so it's not just an expression of brute power that we might think of um, when we think of the great gods of the nations they can flex their muscles and cause things to happen but god shows precision and control that those gods would not necessarily exhibit i if you look through a number of the statements that are made that specific things will happen at specific times. And Pharaoh even says in response to the question, when will this particular plague be removed? Tomorrow, not today, not immediately. But if your God is so, if your God is truly in control, he will be able to determine when it is removed, mm. not just that it is removed. Mm -hmm. And the power of God in that respect extends beyond the power of the pagan deities who have a particular ability to express their strength in a particular realm and um, i think of it like a game i'm not sure if you have it in the u.s um top trumps where you have cards with different um qual different powers for different vehicles or machines or football players whatever it is you compare them on specific stats and one will beat another in a particular realm and then it will be beaten on another criterion in some other respect by another card. And God is not playing top trumps with the <laughs> gods of the nations. He's the one who can gather together the entire deck, pack it away, and express his strength and control over the entirety of the creation. Mm -hmm. And that understanding of God, I think, provides a foundation for 
the duty that we have to obey him. The rebellion of Pharaoh is seen coming into the foreground when he rebels against God, not just as a powerful deity among the deities, but the God above all gods, the one who is not playing the same game as them, but the God who created them and is above all the creation. And then that command to serve him alone is founded upon a unique revelation of who he is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... and um I mean, maybe particular points in the in the story of the plagues that bring that out uh, when uh, after after a series of uh, replications, the magicians find that they can't replicate uh, the later plagues, or the 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 you mentioned the pinpointing of time, but also there's the pinpointing of place where the plagues are going to apply. So Yahweh can determine that the plague will apply to Egyptians and not to Israelites. He can distinguish between the two. It sounds like also. Implicit, what you were saying is that uh, he's uh, he's claiming sovereignty over territory that the Egyptian gods had claimed sovereignty over. So, um, the uh, you know the Nile is a deity or under some kind of control of some kind of Egyptian deity. Where Yahweh, it's it's water courses in his hand. He determines whether it's going to flow or not, whether it's going to be water or blood. Uh, that's not uh, that that realm is under is under his control, as is every other realm in Egypt. Uh, the other thing that uh, that uh, your comments bring up is a comment that David Bentley Hart makes in a very Hart-esque essay in uh, in a volume edited by Carl Broughton and uh, Christopher Seitz, uh, and he he describes the first word as a kind of declaration of war. We sometimes read the first word as a commandment to us: we refrain from worshiping other gods. We want to be left alone so we can worship our god. But um, against the background of the plagues. And anticipating the conquest, it's clear that the first word has has a much more aggressive, militant kind of um, uh, import. It's not just that we want to be left alone to worship our God, but that our God is claiming to be the one true God, and he desires and will have a world in which there are no other gods before him, in which the idols of Egypt are thrown down. There's going to be an Egypt. He's going to make an Egypt where Yahweh is acknowledged as the God of all. He's going to uh, tear down the send Israel to tear down the idols and the shrines of the Canaanites, so that he is exalted as the one God of Canaan. Um, so it's, it has this kind of militant, missional dimension to it, not simply a not simply a a, a command for us, but a com, uh, for us to maintain our commitment to the one God, but a, a command to to uh, purge the creation of idols, and so that there is only one God before God. There is no other God before God. The oneness of God is also connected within this passage with the uniqueness of his relationship with his people, that he has taken them out of Egypt. There is no other God like the Lord for Israel. Um, so although we're holding a lot stronger position than henotheism, for instance, here, there is that uniqueness of the relationship between God and his people that is part of the message of this commandment that we relate to God, the Lord, as our husband. Um, there is a bond that requires us to acknowledge his, not just that he is the God above all in a deist sense, mm -hmm. but he is the God who has taken us as his people. Mm -hmm. And any other God is not just a failure to worship the true God, but is a breaking of covenant. It's a spiritual adultery. 
Yeah, it's been one of anti Wright's most important insights is to see the that monotheism uh, as a foundation for uh, Paul's dealing with the Jew Gentile issue in the early church. So the way that Paul argues in Galatians and in Romans is God God of the Jews only, or is he God of Jews and Gentiles? There is only one God, so the one God must be God of Jews and Gentiles, and there must be one way to be reconciled to this one God, not not a separate way for Jews and Gentiles. So the one God is the God who has rescued Israel and to whom Israel is committed, and that expands out into in the New Testament, so that the one God is the God who knits together Jew and Gentile into one new humanity. One other thing that I think is important for, an important implication of the, the uh, biblical teaching of the one God. Obviously, this is uh, there is one sovereign God as opposed to the multiple gods of ancient polytheism. But that gives a, a possibility for a kind of coherence and stability in life that is impossible to find in the kind of polytheistic system. Um, if you think that the world is divided up into uh, different jurisdictions and there's a God that is in charge of each jurisdiction or perhaps competing gods that are in uh, competing for control of a particular jurisdiction, then uh, you're pulled in multi- multiple different directions to try to satisfy all these different deities. Their demands might be contradictory to one another. You can't satisfy them all. You can't possibly satisfy all the gods who might make, be making demands on you. So there's this kind of anxiety and fracturing and fragmentation of life that is inherent in polytheism uh, that just kind of dissipates and dissolves when you say, well, no, there's only one God that you have to please. <laughs> if you go out on the sea, you don't have to go to a sea God and offer to a sea God because he's the God of the sea. If you're uh, traveling across land, you seek the protection of the one God who is also God of the land. Uh, it gives a coherence to, to life that you you simply can't have in a system that's uh, where you have you have all these multiple contradictory demands. And I think that I'm interested in your in your reflections on this, but that fracturing of uh, that I think is inherent in ancient polytheism is something that's still prevalent in modernity. We don't have polytheism because we don't believe that the uh, the voices that we're obeying are divine voices, but we do have multiple voices speaking to us. Uh, and so we're pulled in this, uh, similarly pulled in a variety of different directions, and lives get fragmented, and uh, obedience to the first word is what gives coherence to life. That obedience to the first word, as you mentioned it, I think the coherence to life is something that is reflected in a particular sort of piety that is made possible by monotheism, that we are not just creating a whole series of bargains with different powers, but we are devoted to the one true God. There is a bond of love and a sense of... It's gratitude. not transactional. Exactly. And that transactional form of piety, I think, is an integral to a polytheistic society. Whereas if we worship the one true God, we can receive all things as gifts from his hand, not just as bargain-making and transaction-forming that we give something and we get something in return, but there is one God above all, and everything that we receive is his pure benevolence towards us. Yeah, I'm interested in your thoughts about the modern idolatry or kind of soft forms of polytheism that we have in contemporary culture. Yes, I think there's something to that. Um, 
the struggle that we have with gratitude, maybe w working from the perspective of the piety that results from these things, problems that we might have with gratitude could be a symptom of our failure to integrate things in to recognize that all these different things that we receive that we feel perhaps realms that we feel beholden to powers within that these things ultimately come from a single hand mm -hmm. um, and that being torn apart in different directions the loyalties that we might have to um, the way that we look to the modern gods the state science um, technology all these sorts of things that pull us in different directions. It makes it very difficult for us to find unity as human beings too, that the unity of God, the oneness of God leads to a oneness of people, um, a oneness before the face of God. That's part, of, I think, of Paul's logic in Galatians. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'd need to give that some more thought. Yeah, that brings up, a, I think, another dimension of... Um thinking again of Hart's comment that the first word is a declaration of war. Uh, it's it's also in some ways a call to, to a witness and a kind of call to witness in the face of opposition, the competing demands that you were talking about. Uh, if, we, if we declare ourselves committed to the one God in a world where there are multiple voices demanding our loyalty, we say, no, there is... We have one God and one Lord Jesus Christ, and we serve and obey Him. That puts us in a uh, a risky, can put us in a risky situation. That's exactly the kind of commitment that led to uh, martyrdom in the early church. Early Christians were offered bargains to incorporate Jesus into the pantheon, to somehow incorporate the worship of their one God into the worship of many gods, and the Christians refused. Uh, this is the God we are committed to, this is the one we're loyal to, we will have no other gods before his face. Uh, and that was, a, a, again, an act of witness against the multiple gods and against the multiple voices. So again, the, the first word is not a, it's not a, it doesn't call us to a kind of safe haven of worship of the one living God. Uh, it calls us to faithful witness in the face of multiple um, alternative and competing demands. And the unity that that gives to the worshipper, I think, is worth considering. When we think about a polytheistic society, you are living your life out in the presence of a great many different gods, um, and that changes from realm to realm as you move through these different realms of life. If we are living the entirety of our lives out in the presence of the one true God before whom we are finally accountable— that gives us a different way of seeing ourselves, not as beings that are fractured between these different realms and deities before whose face we must live, but beings that are held together in a unity before the one true God. I want to point out, too, the particular phrasing of the, the actual imperative of the first word, thou shalt have no other gods before my face. It's a typical Hebrew idiom for before me in my presence. Uh, but I think it, it's uh, worth noting that that's the phrasing that's used. Um, it suggests that the particular uh, prohibition is about erecting gods or worshiping gods uh, in the presence of the living God. So the kind of idolatry that uh, Manasseh engages in might be the most egregious example. And Manasseh erects an, an image of, a, of, a, of another god right in the temple, 
right before the face of Yahweh. Uh, or maybe the uh, a visionary tour that Ezekiel takes of the temple when he goes to the temple and he sees carved into the walls and that there are images and idols that are present in the presence uh, before the face of Yahweh. So uh, there's a kind of a locational dimension to the way the first word is phrased. And the most uh, direct violation would be the worship of a another god before the face of God, the erection of another god, an image of another god perhaps, in the presence of the living God in his house. But there are various ways that the, the, the Bible shows us that I mean, that's not to say, I should say this say it this way, that's not to say that Israel was free to worship other gods elsewhere. That's obviously not the case. Um, outside of, if they, if they go beyond the face of God, then they can set up idols that they could worship other gods. They can have other gods. They can't escape the presence of God for one thing. But then there's also the, there's several passages that describe uh, uh, what, uh, that use the phrase the idols of the heart, particularly in Ezekiel 14. Uh, when the elders come to Ezekiel, they're consulting Ezekiel, but the Lord warns Ezekiel they're not really going, they're not really coming in sincerity. They come with their idols in their heart. They pretend that they want to listen to you, but they're not going to listen to the word of their word of the Lord from you. They're just uh, worshiping the idols of their heart. If you, have, if you have idols in your heart, then you're carrying those idols wherever you are. And wherever you are, you're bringing those idols before the face of God. If you come into the temple with idols in your heart, then you've brought idols before the face of God. And that seems to me to be even more, that's, that's intensified by the new covenant when we don't have the same kind of spatial or, or a place for the worship of God. Uh, God is present in us, among us. He's present in people. The Spirit dwells in us. Uh, Jesus Christ dwells in us. And if we have idols in our heart, then they are quite uh, directly before the face of God because they're in the temple that is our body. So I think that's the reason that uh, the, the Bible encourages, you shall have no other, no other gods before my face, but especially in New Covenant terms, that means particularly no other gods in, uh, erected in your heart, no other gods erected in your life, because uh, the Spirit dwells in you, and you are always in the presence of God. Anything you, any idol you worship is an idol that's before the face of God. If we were to um, approach the Ten Commandments in a, a modern context of ethics, we would be surprised, if we were cre creating such a system, to start off with a command about idolatry. Modern understandings of ethics are very much horizontally ordered, um, concerned with the way that we relate to others, the harm principle, things like that. But yet beginning the Ten Commandments with this command against idolatry, serving false gods, other gods before the Lord. How can that help us to understand ethics? I've found it helpful to think about the way ethics, as we see it, is very much framed by con the concern of um, being ordered towards ourselves, of being focused upon um, self-gratification over other things like serving of others, but yet, there's something within the human heart that is ordered towards sacrifice, that's ordered towards something above us, whether that is the state, whether it is money, whether it is science, whether it is um, our particular tribe, our nation, whatever it is, there is something within us that is ordered towards sacrifice to something greater. And 
a Christian understanding of ethics can never merely be horizontal. It begins with that ordering towards the true God, the true God that opposes any form of idolatry that is rampant within any society. We are idol-making factories. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the, the way that I have uh, developed in thinking about the 10 words in particular is uh, think about in terms of the, the five plus five structure of the 10 words. The first five commandments are, four of them are explicitly about our relation to God, about worship of God, about images, about the name of God, about keeping the Sabbath day. I think honoring your father and mother is still talking about uh, relation to God through the authorities. We get to the second five, the second uh, table, if you will. That seems to be more within the realm of what, you know, modern ethics. You're talking about horizontal relations of life and property and sexual relations. But uh, that's, all, that's already been, that's already contextualized by the first five words. And then I think, given that contextualization, the, the second five words should also be understood to have theological dimensions. They're not explicit in the ten words. But uh, it's not hard to find theological rationale for each of the second five commandments. The obvious one is the sixth word, thou shalt not murder, which is given a rationale early in the Bible, in Genesis 8, that uh, has to do with uh, our assaults on the image of God, the reason why those who uh, kill have to be uh, executed is because in the image of God created he him. Uh, so the second five commandments, I think, are all in different ways assaults on the image of God. So even when you're talking about the apparently horizontal dimensions of ethics, within the 10 words, there's this vertical dimension is always in, co-involved in that. There's, these are inseparable. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.